Welcome to Stories of Iceland. Cause it's cold out there. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Not uh, hardly. It was cold December. Very cold, in fact. The frost turned my mind towards a book on Iceland and its author. It seemed a simple episode to write. Tell the story of the book and the author's romantic adventures. No problemo. Then I started digging. The simple story I had read and heard in various forms turned out to be so much more complicated than I had imagined. Then there was the iris angle. I lived in Ireland for a few months back in 2007 as an exchange student studying folklore at University College Cork. I have a fascination with Irish history, so so a connection to the Williamette War and the Jacobite cause was almost irresistible. Before I knew it, I was reading the correspondence of an English or Irish French English noblewoman from the late 18th century into the 19th century. So while I'm late with this episode, it is simply because the research was so much more intense than for most episodes. In fact, I have never had to cut as much material from a podcast script before, and I might revisit the subject in the future. Please join my supporters. I'd like to thank all of them, especially Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland. And this is episode 46. A winter in Iceland, 1834 to 1835. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. If you visit the open-air museum Orpersa in Reykjavik, you might find yourself buying refreshments within a pale green house with a black roof. The house is called Dylan's house. Who was this Dylan, you ask? There are twists and turns here, but the story begins in Ireland. In Irish history, there is a distinction to be made between Old English families and the Anglo-Irish. The Dillons belong to the former group, the Old English, descendants of the Normans who conquered England in the 11th century and went on to Ireland in the 12th. Because they had been in Ireland for centuries when the Reformation came, the Old English mostly kept their Catholic ways, while the later Anglo-Irish were Protestant. In the so-called Glorious Revolution and Williamite War in the late 17th century, the Viscount Dillon sided with Catholic James II. After the king lost his wars, the Dillons were divided. 
one branch managed to hold on to titles and lands while the other went with their fellow Jacobites into exile in France. When the title and lands passed to the rebellious French branch of the family, it led to an extraordinary occurrence in 1743, where the 11th Viscount commanded his regiment on the side of the French against the British. Inexplicably, he did not lose his titles, but instead married Charlotte Lee, the daughter of the Earl of Lichfield. Thirty years later, the last Earl died childless, and Charlotte inherited the wealth of her family, including the country house, Ditchley Park. Now the Dillons became more and more English. Before he inherited his title, the 12th Viscount left the Catholic Church, became a member of Parliament, and changed his last name to the hyphenated Dylan Lee in honor of his mother's family. Though he might be seen to have left his ancestors' Jacobite links behind, he did marry one Henrietta Maria Phipps, and a legitimate great-granddaughter of King James II. Their grandson was Arthur Edmund Dennis Dillon Lee, the 16th Viscount Dillon of Costello Gallin. When he was young, it did not seem likely that he would ever inherit the title. He was, after all, the third son. The lack of title did give him a certain amount of freedom, and so when he inherited money from his father, he decided to travel. In July 1834, the 22-year-old hits a ride with a Danish naval ship that was on its way to pick up a naughty prince who had been sent off to Iceland to cool down. Dylan ended up spending a year in Iceland before heading on to northern Scandinavia. In 1840, he published a two-volume book entitled A Winter in Iceland and Lapland, about his travels. The volume on Iceland offers an interesting view of Reykjavik in the mid-1830s, but now I'm going to tell you the fascinating story that he did not include in his book. Soon after arriving in Reykjavik, the young Dillon met an Icelandic woman called Sigríður Elisabeth Þorkelsdóttir Bergman. Sigríður was 13 years older than him. She had been married at 15 and had two sons by her former husband and ran an establishment called Klubberin, the club. It was there that Dillon rented a room starting in November 1834, though... In his book, he says the move was made because he needed a warmer place to live. Basic math indicates that Sirius started keeping Dylan warm well before November. Since Dylan himself does not write anything about his relationship, we have to fill in the story with bits gleaned from other sources. In September of 1834, months after his arrival in Reykjavik, a building permit was issued for a house that would later bear Dylan's name. The paper trail returns on the 28th of April, 1835, when the Danish Chancellery denies a petition from Dylan for certain dispensations 
so he could be granted a marriage license to Sirildr. Then, on June 13th, Sirildr gave birth to a daughter. In the church record, the daughter is named Henrietta Dillon, even though her father is listed only as a traveling Englishman. Why was Dylan denied a marriage license? The usual story in Iceland is that it was because he was Catholic. This seems perfect for a sentence of Irish Jacobites. There was no freedom of religion in Iceland back then. It wasn't until four years later that a dispute over a Mormon wedding in Vestmanair led to reforms in these matters. The problem with this explanation is that there is no indication that Dylan was Catholic. It is tempting to concoct a story about the family which explains away the conversion of his grandfather as a subterfuge to avoid the restrictions of the so-called penal laws which limited the rights of Catholics. The only supporting evidence that I can find for this is the fact that Arthur's father fought hard for Catholic emancipation as a member of parliament, and one of his younger brothers did join the Catholic Church later in life. On the other hand, R. Dillon seems to have been baptized into and later married within the Church of England. Another explanation seems to be needed. Icelandic laws in the 19th century are notoriously difficult to navigate, but from what I can gather is that to marry a man needed to be at least 25 winters old and have a witness or two who could confirm that there were no legal impediments to the marriage. That is, that the man was who he said he was, that he was unmarried, and that he was old enough. There was no man in Iceland who could witness on Dylan's behalf, but the main problem seems to be that Arthur Dylan was only 23 years or winters old. A guardian, in this case likely his brother, the 14th Viscount, could have given his consent, but there are indications that the Dillon family was opposed to the merits. There are even rumors that his family was actively pressuring the authorities in Denmark and or Iceland to refuse to issue a marriage license. The arrival of his younger brother Constantine at the end of winter 1835 can be seen as a part of their active opposition. Having been denied a marriage license, Dylan was forced to abandon his lover and daughter at the end of the summer, but he left them with the house he had built, Dylan's house. He then went on to northern Scandinavia where he traveled among the Sami people. Dylan kept in touch with his daughter and visited the country at least once more in 1871. Both Henrietta and her son visited Dylan in England. In the National History Museum in Reykjavik, there is even a silver pitcher bearing her name and the inscription, The Gift of Her Father. It is unknown if she has any living descendants today. Dylan inherited the title Viscount in 1879 and held it until his death in 1892. The 22nd Viscount, Henry Benedict Charles Dillon, is his descendant. 
When, in 1988, a brand of gin was produced bearing the name Dillon Lauwardur, the then 15-year-old Lord Dillon visited the country as a part of some bizarre marketing ploy. While the house Dillon and Sirir built is often remembered for their love, there is also a darker story of murder that I will not go into. I should also note that while there is a bar called Dillon in downtown Reykjavik, it has no direct connection to the Viscounts. As winter reigns in Iceland, I want to read a few excerpts from Dylan's book. These are taken out of order. The text mentions temperatures without any explanation regarding what scale Dylan is using. My best guess is that it is Celsius. A winter in Iceland. During the month of February, the thermometer several times fell 10 degrees below zero at Reykjavik, and within 12 miles from it, in the interior, the mercury had fallen several degrees lower. I had my coffee freeze one morning in the saucer while I was drinking it out of the cup. And this happened in a very small room with a stove full of fire. I have since been in North America, and though the cold indicated by the thermometer was greater than in Iceland, the frost was far more sensible in the latter country. The lowest that I have ever seen the thermometer was in Quebec, when the mercury fell 32 degrees below zero, and, though I have never seen it by many degrees so low in Iceland, I can remember many occasions when the cold has appeared to me far more intense. I account for this difference by the serenity of the weather in Canada and the awful gales that never cease to blow in Iceland. Often I have been obliged to turn back, finding it useless to attempt to urge my horse against the wind. He was in fact unable to stem the storm, which in an instant covered him with icicle and froze the stirrups to my boots. On two occasions when returning home, I have found my entrance quite put out of question, by the whole front being snowed up to the roof. Windows, door, everything had disappeared, and all in the course of an hour. I have no doubt but this will deemed an exaggeration, and that many will question the possibility of existing in such a climate. All I can answer is that the winter I passed in Iceland was the severest there had been for half a century. For the last twenty years the winters had been particularly mild, as I believe has been the case in Europe. It seemed it was intended to balance the advantages derived by the people from good weather, by the extraordinary rigor of this winter. This the majority had strongly impressed upon them by the great loss they suffered in the death of their cattle. Many were obliged to kill several of their horses. Even the bishop, who was probably as well supplied with forage as any farmer, was necessitated to have nine of his slaughtered for want of food to give them. 
the wind was even protected beyond its usual limits, and upon no day in the summer that followed it did I feel as much heat as in the month of November on my return to England. The hardihood and the sagacity of the horses cannot be too much admired. The first quality will scarcely be denied them by any who has seen them lie out in the whole winter with no other shelter than that of their coats, which are longer than bears, and obliged to sustain life by picking up seaweed on the shore. When hard-pressed by hunger, many will devour fish and thrive on it. In travelling over the plains that abound in quagmires, too much reliance cannot be placed sagacity of these beasts, whose instinct will carry them safe through the greatest difficulties. On coming to a doubtful place, both their scent and feeling will be put in requisition, and should they refuse to advance, not even the severest application of the whip will suffice to urge them on, on one or two occasions I have seen an obstinate rider overcome the reluctance of his horse to proceed, and an immersion up to the neck in the mud was invariably consequence. Sledges are not in use in Iceland, the country being too mountainous and the weather too stormy. Nor did I see more than one pair of snowshoes while among these people. In form, they differed materially from those used by the North American Indians, and in my opinion not so well calculated for supporting a weight as they were made from one piece of wood, about four feet long and very narrow, with the points turned up. The pair I saw belonged to a man who had brought the mail from the north, a journey which is often, in winter, attended with danger not merely from the excessive cold, but from the sudden drifts of snow that ought to often overwhelm the traveller who finds sufficient impediments to his progress in the darkness that shrouds him for twenty out of twenty-four hours. Yet I have heard it asserted that there are people living among the glaciers, and that smoke seen in the distance is supposed to issue from their dwelling. Though I have heard this from more than one person, I can hardly give credit to the tale of anyone choosing such a residence and attribute the whole popular belief that a band of robbers who had fled at different times from justice have selected this part of the country as a retreat in which they can defy pursuits and form a society of their own, unrestrained by laws, human or divine. About Christmas, 1834, a young woman imprudently quitted the church alone before the service was over, with the intention of nursing a child that she had left at home. Before she had got out of the town, a violent snowstorm was raging, which rendered it impossible to see an inch before her. Maternal solicitude, however, overcame her fears, and she hurried on towards her house which was not more than a quarter of a mile distant. But she lost her way and wandered about till, becoming drowsy, she fell asleep. Upwards of one hundred persons went in quest of her, 
for many successive days, and though the search was repeated several times during the winter, it proved unavailing. Till the end of the following March, when a partial thaw discovered her corpse frozen in a sitting posture, within a few yards of her home. Though so great a part of the year would seem from inclemency to preclude labor, the winter is perhaps the period of greatest activity, and these tenants of the frigid zone can scarcely boast of their long nights of revelry and ease. Huddled together in a small apartment, usually the loft, without stove or any warmth but that arising from the confined atmosphere, and the packing of twelve or fifteen persons in a place of just sufficient capacity to contain their bulk, the family continue their labors till a late hour in the night, often till two and three in the morning, enlivened by listening to one of the party who chants some saga out of a book by the light of a dim seal oil lamp. At times the monotony of the single voice is relieved by a hymn, the kind of music most relished by the Icelanders, in which the whole family join. While at work in the winter, the women generally sit on their beds cross-legged, and to counteract the effects of remaining long in the same position, they acquire a habit of swinging their bodies from side to side. This is not entirely confined to the females, and it becomes so powerful that I have often observed men, while standing in the open air, in conversation, keep up this sort of perpetual motion without being conscious of it. If, however, the days were gloomy, their dreariness was in some measure compensated for the brilliancy of the nights. I had, some years before, witnessed the aurora borealis in the Orkney Isles, and had been struck with its beauty, yet its partial light in that quarter could bear no comparison with the splendor it assumes in Iceland. There its brightness pervades the whole expanse of the sky, and fills it with a stream of ever-varying colors. During frosty weather it is visible every night, giving even more light than the moon, and it has the additional charm of being continually changing. It is perpetually melting into new forms and presenting every variety of hue that the eye can fancy. It has alternatively blue and green mixed with its prevailing pink, which imperceptibly fades into yellow and as gradually revives and becomes a bright flame color. That is it for today. Thanks to Vita van Helstare, Emily Cooper, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. And to be clear, Dylan is talking about skis when he is describing Icelandic snowshoes. I am Olgnis Solison and this has been Stories of Iceland episode 46, A Winter in Iceland 1834-1835. to 1835.